Good morning and afternoon. Thank you for joining us today for BioNTech's second quarter 2023 earnings call. As a brief reminder, the slides that accompany this call and the second quarter 2023 press release that was issued this morning can be found in an investor section of our website. As outlined on slide two, you can see our forward-looking statements disclaimer. Additional information about these statements and other risks are described in our filings made with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Forward-looking statements on the call are subject to substantial risks and uncertainties. Speak only as of the call's original date, and we undertake no obligation to update or revise any of these statements. On slide three, you can find the agenda for today's call. Today, I'm joined by the following members of Biontech's management team. Our CEO and co-founder, Ugur Zahin, Islam Turechi, our Chief Medical Officer and co-founder, Jens Holstein, our Chief Financial Officer, and Ryan Richardson, our Chief Strategy Officer. I would like to turn the call over to Ugur Zahin. Thank you, Victoria. A warm welcome to all the call participants. We appreciate your continued support. Today, I will summarize our second quarter 2023 highlights and priorities before I pass the call over to my team to provide some further details. Slide five. Let me start reiterating our 2023 strategic priorities that we set at the beginning of the year and highlight our recent progress executing against them. We pursue our priority to expand and sustain our COVID-19 leadership with Pfizer by advancing our next generation and combination vaccine candidates and by advancing key community features. During this quarter, we receive recommendations from regulatory authorities and the World Health Organization on the composition of the adapted COVID-19 vaccine for the 2023-2024 fall season. Based on these recommendations, we together with our partner Pfizer have submitted regulatory packages for an Omicron XBB 1.5 adapted monovalent COVID-19 vaccine to the US. FDA, EMA, and other regulatory agencies. We have also kicked off commercial launch activities for the Omicron XBB 1.5 adapted monovalent COVID-19 vaccine. Our second 2023 strategic priority is to accelerate our oncology pipeline and initiate multiple trials with registrational potential. Our new collaborations with Duality Bio and OncoC4 complement our pipeline with multiple mid to late stage clinical programs that will help us to achieve this goal in the near term. In the second quarter at ASCO annual meeting, we and our respective collaboration partners presented three new clinical data sets that Earthland will cover later. Further, jointly with our partner on C4, we began a pivotal phase three trial evaluating the next generation anti CTLR4 antibody candidate BNT316, Gotistobat, as a second line treatment for patients with non small cell lung cancer. Our first strategic goal is to initiate and accelerate clinical programs with high medical need in infectious diseases. We are expecting multiple data readouts for our mRNA based vaccine candidates in the second half of this year. In summary, we continued our focus execution against strategic priorities in the second quarter and look forward to additional progress in all three of these areas 
in the remainder of this year. Slide six. Starting with COVID-19, while variants of concern have emerged in all seasons in the past few years, we expect that in the fall and winter, in line with other common respiratory diseases such as influenza and RSV, also SARS-CoV-2 hospitalization will increase. Slide seven. In 2023, four years after the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, there's a high zero prevalence in the global population as a result of vaccination and or infection. Profiles of immune responses against SARS-CoV-2 are highly heterogeneous as individuals have been infected with different variants and or vaccinated using a variety of vaccine platforms. The substantial genetic and antigenic evolution of SARS-CoV-2 and its spike protein continues with divergence of the evolutionary trajectory from the original wild-type virus. Despite increasing gaps in the genomic surveillance globally, the available sequencing data in indicates that the original virus and other early variants such as alpha, beta, gamma, delta are no longer detected in humans. As of July 2023, the XBB1 descendant lineages predominate globally and they have further antigenic distance from previous variants. Clinical data have shown that currently approved COVID-19 vaccines provide a level of protection against this new variant. However, with the antigenic drift of current variants of concern, signs of waning protection have been observed starting two to four months after boosters with last season's before B5 adapted vaccine, including against severe COVID-19. Due to the greater antigenic distance of this variance of concern and the further immune escape, absolute vaccine effectiveness against hospitalization due to COVID-19 is reduced as time passes between vaccination and subsequent infection. In summary, this data support a rollout of a COVID-19 vaccine adapted to the most recent variants of concern this fall. We plan to launch an Omicron XBB 1.5 adapted monovalent COVID-19 vaccine this fall, subject to approval by regulatory authorities. Our goal is to maintain protection against severe COVID-19 disease, hospitalization and death by providing a vaccine that is better matched to the current circulating strains and that is designed to be more closely aligned to the newer evolving lineages. Slide eight, let me remind you of the core principles of our overarching strategy. We pursue a multi-technology driven approach rooted in deep fundamental understanding of biology and immunobiology. We leverage the power of computational science and AI. Our acquisition of InstaDeep has expanded our capabilities in that regard. Together, we aim to become the global leader in applying cutting-edge artificial intelligence and machine learning technology and research to discover, design, and develop next-generation immunotherapies at scale. We build novel platforms with the ability to produce multiple product candidates for our clinical pipeline, including approaches that enable and accelerate individualization of treatment. To leverage synergistic mode of action, we explore opportunities for combining modalities, both developed internally and accessed via collaboration partnerships. Last quarter, we announced that we initiated a collaboration with Duality Biologics to access 
two of their next generation antibody drug conjugates. This quarter, we and Doherty shared clinical data from one of these programs and expanded our collaboration to a third encouraging program from Doherty Biologics Pipeline. Slide nine, ACCs consists of three main components, antibody, linker, payload. Each of these components has an impact on ADCs' pharmacological and clinical properties. ADCs are precision medicines, allowing for targeted drug delivery, particularly to tumor cells with high specificity and potently induced cell death with the benefit of reduced off-target events. When the monoclonal antibody binds to the target expressed in the tumor cell, the ADC is internalized, allowing for the release of the cytotoxins which leads to cell death. We continue to broaden our access to ADCs because we believe this technology has the potential to replace highly toxic chemotherapy regimens to become a new combination backbone for cancer immunotherapy. Advancements in this technology have resulted in its extended use for the treatment of solid tumors. ADCs can also synergize with various immunotherapy modalities, including those in our current immunotherapy pipeline. Our growing ADC pipeline now includes ADCs directed against three distinct targets and is of interest for a broad range of cancer types. In the future, we plan to combine these ADCs with our proprietary pipeline programs to maximize the patient impact of this exciting modality. With that, I would like to thank you all for your confidence in our success and your continued support. I will now turn the call over to Özlem. Thank you, Ugo. I'm delighted to speak with everyone today and to provide our pipeline update. Slide 11. Starting with our COVID-19 vaccine, we expect that as SARS-CoV-2 continues to evolve and the risk of severe COVID-19 disease and deaths continues, there will be persisting demand for vaccine boosting and vaccinations, especially for at-risk and immunocompromised groups. The Omicron XBB sublineages currently account for the majority of COVID-19 cases globally and are antigenically distant from prior circulating SARS-CoV-2 lineages, including Omicron BA45 and the original SARS-CoV-2 strain. Although Omicron BA45 adapted bivalent vaccines provide some protection against a range of outcomes from XBB-related COVID-19, evidence suggests that vaccines better matched to currently circulating sublineages can help further improve protection against symptomatic disease and severe COVID-19. XBB lineage viruses have reduced neutralization in comparison to earlier Omicron lineages, but have similar neutralization profiles to each other. The spike sequence of XBB 1.5 and XBB 1.16 differ in only two mutations highlighted here. In May, the EMA and other health authorities provided guidance highlighting that updated vaccines targeting Omicron XBB1 sublineages may help to maintain protection against COVID-19 during the upcoming fall and winter season, when COVID-19 case rates and hospitalizations are expected to increase. 
Also, the FDA's Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, the VERBAC, issued guidance recommending manufacture of an Omicron XBB 1.5 adapted monovalent COVID-19 vaccine for the 2023 and 2024 fall and winter seasons. We and Pfizer submitted regulatory applications to the EMA and to the FDA for our Omicron XBB 1.5 adapted monovalent COVID-19 vaccine for individuals six months of age and older. Following guidance from regulatory authorities on the requirements for strain changes, the applications include data suggesting that Omicron XBB 1.5 adapted monovalent COVID-19 vaccine may generate improved responses against circulating XBB sublineages compared to the current Omicron BA45 adapted bivalent COVID-19 vaccine. Moving to slide 12, we and our partner Pfizer tested the potential effectiveness of an Omicron XBB 1.5 adapted monovalent vaccine as a primary series and booster in mice. Here you see the neutralizing antibody response in mice immunized with a Omicron BA45 adapted bivalent vaccine as booster after two doses of the original vaccine. One group of mice again received the BA45 adapted bivalent COVID-19 vaccine as a fourth dose, and the other group received the new XBB 1.5 adapted monovalent COVID-19 vaccine as a fourth dose. You can see a four to five fold increase of neutralization of several XBB-related variants when dose 4 is the XBB 1.5 adapted monovalent vaccine as compared to last season's bivalent vaccine, indicating that a XBB 1.5 variant adapted monovalent vaccine in the pre-vaccinated setting has the potential to induce broad cross-neutralizing antibody titers against multiple XBB sublineages. We made significant progress toward a monovalent COVID-19 vaccine against Omicron XBB 1.5 with regulatory submissions to the US FDA, EMA, and other regulatory authorities, and we are well prepared to launch an adapted COVID-19 vaccine if approved in early fall this year. Moving to our oncology pipeline, let me put our second quarter pipeline advancements into the broader context of our clinical stage pipeline, which is depicted on slide 13. In the second quarter, the initiation of our pivotal phase three trial in non-small cell lung cancer marks the first landmark in our strategic collaboration with OncoC4. The randomized phase three trial is evaluating BNT316, a pH-sensitive anti-CTLA4 antibody with distinctive mode of action and is expected to enroll approximately 600 patients with metastatic immunotherapy resistant non-small cell lung cancer. The trial initiation follows the FDA fast track designation granted in 2022 and is based on phase 1-2 safety and efficacy data for the monotherapy in metastatic immune checkpoint inhibitor-resistant non-small cell lung cancer. Further, we expanded our, our collaboration with Duality 
and added a third ADC to our oncology pipeline. DB1305 is currently in a phase 1-2 clinical trial for solid tumors. Then I have news from BNT116, our lung cancer antigen-based fix-vec candidate. A second trial with BNT116 has dosed its first patient end of July. Together with our partner Regeneron, we will evaluate BNT116 in combination with Simiplimab versus Simiplimab monotherapy alone in treatment-naive patients with stage 3B, stage 3C, or stage 4 squamous or non-squamous non-small cell lung cancer patients with at least 50% PDL1 expression in a randomized multicenter open-label phase 2 study. A phase 1 clinical trial is ongoing with BNT116 to evaluate the safety tolerability and preliminary efficacy of BNT116 alone and in combination with semiplimab in patients who have progressed on prior PD-1 inhibitor treatment or are not eligible for chemotherapy and in combination with docetaxel in patients who have received prior PD-1 inhibitor therapy and platinum-based chemotherapy. We are planning to start several trials with our partners imminently. Firstly, Building on compelling phase 1 data in patients with resectable PDUC in the adjuvant setting that we recently reported in Nature, a phase 2 trial with autogen savumaran BNT122, our individualized cancer vaccine candidate, is planned with our partner Genentech, evaluating the efficacy and safety of autogen savumaran in combination with atezolizumab and modified falfurinox compared to modified falfurinox as standard of care alone. Second, another trial is planned to start with our second ADC developed by Duality Bio. BNT324 is a humanized antibody conjugated to a novel DNA topoisomerase 1 inhibitor via a cleavable linker. The phase one part of the study will evaluate the safety in all comers and determine the recommended phase two dose. In the phase two dose expansion part, we aim to evaluate safety and efficacy in small cell and non-small cell lung cancer, esophageal cancer, prostate cancer, melanoma, and other solid tumors. On the next couple of slides, I want to summarize the recently presented data from three of our programs at the ESCO annual meeting. On site 14, starting with BNT316, ONC392. Antibody targeting of CTLA4 works primarily by depleting regulatory T cells and thus their suppression of tumor-specific immunity. Physiologically, CTLA4 recycles continuously between the cell surface and the endosome. Interruption of this process by a binding antibody is associated with the development of autoimmunity. Autoimmunity and immune-related adverse events are a major limitation of approved anti-CTLA4 antibodies that disrupt CTLA4 recycling by promoting lysosomal degradation of its important immune checkpoint molecule. BNT316, in contrast, dissociates from the CTLA4 molecule in the endosome 
allows normal recycling of both the antibody and the CTLA-4 molecule and thus is designed for stronger cancer therapeutic effects and less immune-related adverse effects. Preliminary data showed that BNT316 is well tolerated with no dose-limiting toxicities. The single agent uh, recommended phase two dose was determined to be 10 mg per kick without MTD being reached. Severe immune-related grade three adverse event rate in the combo dose escalation with pembrolizumab was 23%, which is considered lower than what was reported for comparable IO-IO combination. The recommended phase two dose for combination is six mg per kick. Overall, BNT316 dosed as monotherapy and in combination was well tolerated and the safety profile appears to allow higher dosing for a longer duration of treatment as compared, for example, to ipilimumab. Early efficacy data is monotherapy in platinum-resistant ovarian cancer patients and in combination with pembrolizumab in multiple solid tumors were promising. Slide 15. With our colleagues from OncoC4, we presented data from the Phase 1-2 study investigating BNT316 in 35 non-small cell lung cancer patients with metastatic lesions that progressed on immune checkpoint inhibition in previous lines. The majority of patients had an ECOG status of 1. The objective response rate was about 30% and disease control rate was 70%. Patients that responded to BNT316 had previously failed multiple lines of treatment, including several immune checkpoint inhibitors. In this cohort, BNT316 has shown manageable safety and tolerability when dosed at 10 mg per kick twice and followed with 6 mg per kick every three weeks. Immune-related adverse events of grade 3, 4 were observed in 34% of patients and included immune-mediated colitis, ALT-AST increase, and immune hepatitis. Our findings support the further development of BNT316 in non-small cell lung cancer in the phase 3 study, PRESERVE 003. Slide 16. Our second presentation at ESCO was together with our colleagues from Duality Bio and about our first clinical data for BNT-323, our next generation HER2 targeting ADC. BNT-323 is comprised of a HER2 targeting antibody covalently linked to the proprietary DNA topoisomerase 1 inhibitor via a cleavable linker. Approved ADCs have shown anti-tumor activity and clinical benefits in multiple types of cancer, and we believe that midterm ADCs as a modality will become a broadly used backbone for combos in oncology. More efficacious and safer anti-HER2 ADCs, for example, regarding potential lung toxicity, may add further clinical benefit. Preclinical data for BNT-323 described a significantly improved therapeutic window as compared to DS8201A or TDM1 analogs to the approved HER2 ADCs trastuzumab deruxtecan and trastuzumab emtazine, respectively. BNT-323 
has a high drug-to-antibody ratio and when incubated with red monkey and human plasma demonstrated outstanding plasma stability. In her two positive and her two negative mixed cell cultures, BNT323 inhibited the proliferation of both cell types, demonstrating its bystander effect. Pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic analysis of BNT323 in xenograph mouse models showed targeted delivery of the toxin into tumor tissue. In vivo studies in monkeys showed a superior stability of BNT323 and rapid systemic clearance of the toxin. Altogether, these properties result in maintenance of efficacy and reduction of systemic toxicity in animal models. Slide 17. The program has received fast-track designation from the FDA and is being evaluated in a phase 1-2 clinical trial. The study is enrolling pretreated patients with advanced or metastatic HER2-targetable solid tumors. HER2 status is identified via IHC or ISH for expression level, via NGS for HER2 amplification or HER2 mutation. The majority of patients had a HER2 expression by IHC of 2 plus or 3 plus. We showed preliminary anti-tumor activity in heavily pretreated HER2-expressing patients with a median of seven prior systemic treatment lines, including other anti-HER2 ADCs, anti-HER2 antibody therapy, or anti-HER2 TKI therapy. In HER2-positive breast cancer patients, the objective response rate is 50%, the disease control rate is 96%. In HER2-low breast cancer patients, the objective response rate is 38%, the disease control rate is 84%. Anti-tumor activity of BNT323 was also observed in non-breast cancer tumor types, such as colorectal cancer, ovarian cancer, uh, and endometrial cancer. Responses were observed in patients treated with different dose levels and her two expression status. BNT323 was well-tolerated, and all adverse events were manageable so far. Interstitial lung disease of grade 1 occurred in two patients out of 85 patients. Expansion cohorts are ongoing in selected tumor patients treated at the recombinant phase 2 dose, and we expect further data this year. Slide 18. Finally, we presented data on our cell therapy product, candidate BNT211. We developed a highly sensitive second-generation car targeting Claudine 6 with high specificity. The carcinoembryonic antigen Claudine 6 is an ideal target for cell therapy as it is absent in healthy tissues but highly expressed in many high medical need cancers. To improve CAR T-cell engraftment and persistence, we co-developed a CAR T-cell amplifying RNA vaccine or CARVAC for short. The goal is to keep CAR T cells at therapeutically relevant levels. In animal studies, we have shown that the persistence and effector function of CAR T cells can be further enhanced by repeated administration of CARVAC, a nanoparticulate RNA vaccine that encodes Claudine 6. 
CARVAC is based on our uridine nucleoside mRNA Lipopex vaccine technology and mediates body-wide RNA delivery to lymphoid compartment-resident antigen-presenting cells. In multiple preclinical models, the display of a translated natively folded CAR target protein on antigen-presenting cells mediated in vivo stimulation and controlled expansion of CAR T-cells, induced a memory T-cell phenotype along with higher target sensitivity, and enabled tumor control even if subtherapeutic CAR T-cell doses were administered. We are testing the safety, tolerability, and activity of a combination of choline 6 CAR T-cells and CAVAC in a bifurcated dose escalation study with increasing dose levels of CAR T-cells and a fixed CAVAC schedule in patients with various cancer types that are Claudine 6 positive, defined as more than 50% of tumor cells with 2 to 3 plus intensity. A dose escalation has been completed for CAR T-cells derived from a manual manufacturing process, and we have presented data with highly encouraging signs of clinical activity and manageable safety at various conferences in the past. Slide 19, a subsequent cohort of 19 patients have been treated with a CAR-T product manufactured with a scalable automated version of the process. No DLTs have been observed so far, and Claudine 6 CAR-T cells as well as CARVAC were well tolerated reflecting the safety profile detected in the first dose escalation level. The objective re response rate was 41% for all 17 evaluable patients and 75% for eight patients treated at dose level two, namely one times 10 to the eighth CAR T cells. Next to germ cell tumors, which dominated the first dose escalation, we observed ovarian cancer patients responding. We are expecting an additional data readout later this year. Once we have determined the recommended phase two dose for BNT211, we plan to initiate a pivotal trial in germ cell tumors, which has already received prime designation by the EMA. Advancing our pipeline remains a key strategic priority for the year. This and next year, we plan to transform our pipeline as we advance multiple programs towards the pivotal stage. I will now pass the presentation to our CFO, Jens Holzstein. Thank you, Aslam, and a warm welcome to everyone who dialed into today's call. Before we go into the financial details for the second quarter and the first half of 2023, I'll start with giving you an overview on some key financial figures, which you can find on the next slide. Our total revenues reached 1.4 billion euros for the first half of 2023 and are in line with our expectations, with Q2 being the expected weakest quarter in the year. Our COVID-19 vaccine revenues are, as stated and expected before, heavily influenced by seasonal effects, especially now as we have summer in our biggest markets in the Northern Hemisphere. As we have outlined in earlier earnings calls, the revenue development for COVID-19 vaccines is expected to mimic a flu-like setting. I will go into more details concerning our financial guidance and the course of the call, but want to emphasize already now that acknowledging the uncertainties related to the seasonal effect, we reiterate our 2023 COVID-19 vaccine revenue guidance 
of around 5 billion euros for the full 2023 financial year. With 1.4 billion euros in revenues, we ended the first six months of 2023 with an operating result of 91.1 million euros and generated earnings per share on a fully diluted basis of 1 euro and 28 euro cents. With respect to the company's financial position, we ended the second quarter of 2023 with 16.8 billion euros comprising approximately 14.2 billion euros cash and cash equivalents as well as approximately 2.7 billion euros partly current and partly non-current security investments, which are part of our investment strategy. Subsequent to the end of the quarter in July 2023, we received 1.1 billion euros in cash from our collaboration partner Pfizer, settling our gross profit share for the first quarter of 2023, alongside with 0.4 billion euros received until early August in connection with the amended COVID-19 vaccine purchase agreement with the European Commission. In connection with our acquisition of InstaDeep, which closed on July 31st, approximately 450 million euros were invested in form of cash and shares, not including potential future milestones. Overall, with this strong cash position in the background, we are on track to launch our new variant-adapted COVID-19 vaccine and intend to start multiple clinical trials across our oncology and infectious disease pipeline such as the ones with Onco-C4 and Duality Biologics that Ugo just mentioned earlier. I'll be moving to our financial results for the second quarter of 2023, as shown on the next slide. Our total revenues reported reached 166.4 million euros for the second quarter, compared to 3.2 billion euros for the comparative prior year period, and decreased with the corresponded lower COVID-19 vaccine market demand. Write-offs by our collaboration partner Pfizer significantly reduced our gross profit share in the second quarter and hence negatively influenced our revenues for the three months ended June 2023. Let me move to cost of sales, which amounted to 162.9 million euros in the second quarter of 2023, compared to 764.6 million euros for the comparative prior year period. For the first six months of 2023, the cost of sales reached 258.9 million euros, compared to 2.1 billion euros for the comparative prior year period. The change is in line with decreasing COVID-19 vaccine sales. Research and development expenses reached 373.4 million euros for the second quarter of 2023, compared to 399.6 million euros for the comparative prior year period. For the first six months of 2023, research and development expenses amounted to 707.4 million euros, compared to 685.4 million euros for the comparative prior year period. Our R&D expenses are mainly influenced by progressing clinical studies for pipeline candidates, the development of variant adapted as well as next generation COVID-19 vaccines, and the expansion of our R&D headcount. General and administrative expenses amounted to 122.7 million euros for the second quarter of 2023 compared to 130 million euros for the comparative prior year period. For the first six months of 2023, GNA expenses reached 242.1 million euros compared to 220.8 million euros for the comparative prior year period. While in Q2 some cost savings have been achieved, GNA expenses for the first six months were mainly influenced by increased expenses for IT services 
as well as expanding the GA headcount. Due to a loss-making second quarter of 2023 and the tax effects of a reorganization of the intellectual property rights within the group, income taxes with an amount of 221.8 million euros were realized compared to tax expenses of 647.3 million euros accrued for the comparative prior year period. In total for the first six months of 2023, income taxes were realized with an amount of 16.3 million euros tax income compared to 2 billion euros tax expenses accrued for the comparative prior year period. The derived effective income tax rate for the first six months of 2023 were approximately minus 5.5%, which is expected to change over the 2023 financial year to be in line with the updated estimated annual cash effective income tax rate of somewhere around 21% for the BioNTech group, an improvement that I will elaborate on in a minute. As mentioned at the beginning, due to mainly seasonal effects of our COVID business, we recognized a loss during the second quarter of 2023, amounting to 190.4 million euros compared to 1.7 billion euros net profit for the comparative prior year period. For the first six months of 2023, net profit reached 311.8 million euros compared to 5.4 billion euros for the comparative prior year period. Our loss per share for the second quarter of 2023 amounted to 79 euro cents compared to a dilutive earnings per share of 6 euros and 44 euro cents for the comparative prior year period. For the first six months of 2023, our diluted earnings per share was 1 euro and 28 euro cents compared to 20 euros and 65 euro cents for the comparative prior year period. Now turning to the next slide, I would like to emphasize that we are updating the company's financial outlook for the 2023 financial year with respect to our planned full year R&D and SG&A expenses, as well as our planned expenses and growth and maintenance capex for operating activities, excluding effects caused by or driven from in-licensing arrangements, collaborations, or M&A transactions. Please note that the following numbers reflect current base case projections and are calculated based on constant currency rates and do not include further transactions that could occur in the second half of 2023. As stated before, we reiterate our estimated COVID-19 vaccine revenues of around 5 billion euros for the full 2023 financial year. Our guidance is based on the expectation that the demand in our vaccine will pick up in the year's third and fourth quarter, along with our rollout of the adapted COVID-19 vaccine against XBB 1.5. During the second quarter of 2023, the COVID-19 vaccine supply agreement with the European Commission has been amended. The agreed rephasing of deliveries annually through 2026 will play an important role in the future as revenues will be recognized over the expanded term. With the EC contract giving us a level of clarity in terms of revenue expectations, the demand and vaccination rates in other territories, as for example, the US market, remain uncertain regarding these metrics. Our collaboration partner Pfizer confirmed its plans to achieve its goals for their markets. Given their detailed plans to support an increase in vaccination rates in the US, we expect to achieve our revenue guidance range as previously mentioned. However, substantial uncertainties underlie the demand for COVID-19 vaccines in general, as well as for all vaccines e.g. the timing of its approval will have an impact on its demand. There has been no precedent on how COVID-19 vaccine rates will evolve after years of a pandemic where people have been vaccinated multiple times. 
We expect to learn from this for future years, but we assume that 2023 will be a very special one given the mentioned circumstances. It is our aim to move our clinical programs forward as quickly yet cost-efficiently as possible towards becoming a multi-product company. To do so, we have implemented further measures to increase cost consciousness, which led to a company-wide cost optimization and hence reduction of our expected 2023 R&D, SG&E spend, and capital expenditures. The increased flexibility at expenditure level will help us navigate through the just-described uncertainties while remaining focused on the development of the next wave of innovation in various fields and indications. As summarized for you on this slide, we update our R&D spending for the rest of 2023 from between 2.4 billion euros and 2.6 billion euros to between 2 billion euros and 2.2 billion euros, including the R&D development costs identified from our latest publicly announced M&A activities. We also update our SG&A expenses from between 650 million euros to 750 million euros, now to between 600 million euros and 700 million euros, and reduce our spending for growth and maintenance capex for operating activities from between 500 million euros and 600 million euros to between 350 million euros and 450 million euros. As noted before, we have updated our group estimated annual cash effective income tax rate from around 27% to around 21% excluding potential effects from share-based payment settlements in the course of 2023. Following a reorganization of the intellectual property rights within the group, we recognize deferred tax effects in Germany and the US. Previously unrecognized US federal and state deferred tax assets, including unused tax losses and unused tax credits have been re-evaluated and now recognized. The recognition of these deferred tax assets lead to a decrease in the effective tax rate for the fiscal year of 2023. And with that, I would now like to turn the call over to our Chief Strategy Officer, Ryan Richardson, for an update on our strategic outlook for 2023 and concluding remarks. Thank you. Thank you, Jens. I'll now provide a brief summary of the commercial outlook for our updated COVID-19 vaccine launch and provide an update on our acquisition of Instadi before concluding with our strategic outlook for the remainder of the year and beyond. I would like to touch on our key readiness activities that have put us in a strong position to execute on our planned launch this fall. On the back of the regulatory recommendation for an XBB 1.5 adapted monovalent vaccine, we and Pfizer have made more than 40 regulatory submissions in key geographies around the world. We are on track to begin vaccine distribution once regulatory approval is received with first shipments expected from September onwards. We believe Comirnaty is positioned to maintain its leading position in multiple key geographies. Most of the world will continue to be supplied under existing pandemic booster contracts. This includes our contract with the European Union, our largest contract, which was recently renegotiated to extend to a period over four years. In the United States, we expect our first major commercial market opening, where we will leverage Pfizer's commercial capabilities. Turning to the next slide. This week, we announced that our acquisition of InstaDeep has closed following receipt of all required approvals. With the acquisition, we add world-class AI and machine learning technologies and research capabilities to accelerate and enhance our broader strategic vision. The acquisition will bring over 290 data scientists, ML engineers, and tech professionals to our team, positioning us to lead in this disruptive new field. In combining InstaDeep's AI and ML expertise with our own research and development capabilities, 
we aim to develop novel therapeutic and vaccine product candidates with increased speed and efficiency. We also see opportunities to leverage these AI and ML capabilities outside of R&D across other functions at BioNTech. This makes this a highly strategic acquisition with significant long-term transformational potential across our firm. We will operate Institute as an independent technology subsidiary of BioNTech. On the next slide, we showed the three pillars of value creation that we expect from this transaction. The first is to apply cutting edge AI and machine learning technologies across our therapeutic and vaccine platforms. We plan to connect these AI-enabled discovery capabilities with automated lab infrastructure to enable high throughput drug discovery. While we do expect our overall AI investments to increase in the coming years, we do expect some midterm cost efficiencies from the acquisition by internalizing our largest AI technology and services provider. Finally, we will continue to operate Institute's third-party business, which delivers technology solutions and services to external customers in the technology sector and other industries. We are excited to kick off the next phase of our collaboration with the leadership and bright minds at Institute and believe that together we can become a global leader in applying cutting-edge artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies to discover, design, and develop next-generation immunotherapies at scale. The next slide provides an overview of our expected pipeline news flow for 2023 and 2024. Some of these points have been covered, so I won't go through them all in detail here. With the collective efforts and dedication from our teams, we've achieved remarkable progress for several of our product candidates. At this year's ASCO Congress, we presented data for three of our pipeline candidates. We're on track to share additional data updates across a range of technologies later this year. In June, we initiated our first phase three trial in oncology. Additionally, we started a phase two trial for one of our fixed-back candidates in collaboration with Regeneron, focusing on first-line NSCLC. As Oslo has elaborated, we anticipate initiating several further trials in the near future. On the next slide, I'll summarize the strategic outlook for the remainder of the year. We are on track to roll out our new variant-adapted COVID-19 vaccine in the coming month. We also plan to initiate multiple registrational oncology clinical trials while expanding our infectious disease pipeline. With the Institute acquisition now closed, we intend to rapidly scale up our activity in AI-enabled drug discovery, and we'll continue to execute transactions to expand our innovation ecosystem and execute on our corporate development strategy to in-license complementary assets. Before concluding and opening up the floor for questions, I'd like to reiterate that we will hold our Innovation Series event on November 7th. We'll provide further details on the event in the coming weeks. With that, I would like to thank our shareholders for their continued support, and I'll conclude our prepared remarks and open the floor for questions. Thank you. To ask a question, you will need to press star one and one on your telephone and wait for your name to be announced. In the interest of time, please limit yourself to one question only. To withdraw your question, please press star one and one again. Once again, if you would like to ask a question, please press star one and one. We will now go to your first question. One moment, please. And your first question comes from the line of Dana Graybosch from Layering Partners. Please go ahead. Yeah, I have a, thank you for the question. I have one on ONC392. Uh, um, the, the phase three uh, that you have started, uh, I can't forget the name of it, is, is different in design from the phase two. 
uh, in some of the inclusion exclusion criteria. And I can I wonder if you could talk about why the differences and why you decided to, decided to go forward now in a phase three with single agent CTLA four rather than gathering more data and doing a combination study uh, with PD one or any other agents in this pretty hard to treat uh, and difficult to do trial setting. Dana, hi, here's Ugo. Thank you for the question. Uh, so, so, as you know, the, the uh, phase one, two study collected data in different combinations, and we have seen, we have seen single, com uh, single compound activity in non small cell lung cancer in patients who had uh, received, uh, received and progressed under first line. Uh, checkpoint uh, blockade treatment, and this were this were uh, encouraging uh, uh, objective response uh, rate around 35%. We do not see an uh, added benefit in combining that with the current status quo, which is which is chemotherapy, and therefore decided decided uh, in uh, in the in in also with favoring a. Uh, as a clean safety profile to go with a single compound alone. And the patient population that have been selected for the study uh, reflects historical patient populations with regard to the, uh, to the inclusion and exclusion criteria. Uka, perhaps a follow-up. I think the difference, and tell me if I'm wrong, was the, mm -hmm. the length for which the patients could have received a prior checkpoint. Um, that it's a lot. You, you're requiring a longer prior checkpoint than you in phase three than you did in the phase two. Um, so some phase two patients wouldn't be eligible for phase three. Do you expect any negative yeah. impact from? Yeah, Dana, and the, the 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 protocol has also emerged based on discussion with the FDA and FDA request. Got it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. We will now go to your next question. And your next question comes from the line of Tazin Ahmad from Bank of America. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning, and thanks so much for taking my question. Um, just for point of clarification, as you think about the rest of the year for um, COVID vaccine sales, I know you talked about the difficulties involved in really getting a sense for the trends, but when you decided to maintain guidance, at least for now, um, what key factors are you taking into account that gives you confidence that, that sales will be, or revenues rather, will be at least close to, if not at the, the 5 billion euro mark? And, and I think that's probably the best question for Ryan to answer. Thanks. Yeah, I'll start, Tazine, and, and Jens should, should also chime in here. So, you know, I think the, the starting point here was that we are expecting the total volume uh, of COVID vaccines in the fall to be down. You know, you, you may remember that last year we had distributed more than 500 million doses of our B4B5 variant adapted vaccine globally. Um, and uh, for the full year last year, we had the, the market in the United States was about 144 million doses. We are expecting those numbers to come down, both in the United States and globally. So we factor that in. However, we've also expect that in the United States, that we're going to see a commercial market opening, so a higher price point. We've, with, along with Pfizer, have talked about uh, a gross price in the 110 
to $130 range. Um, that's our expectation. Um, so higher price point in the U.S. and much of the rest of the world, we're still expecting uh, contracts that have already been signed to be the primary um, sort of contractual mode um, governing the second half of deliveries. Um, but demand will still matter. So in the rest of the world, we're still expecting effectively continuation of the booster contracts, um, and that's factored in as well. Yeah, maybe Tuzin, just just to add, I mean, Ryan basically described the situation, and uh, I think we made some statements in our speeches as well in that respect, that of course, a situation like we currently see hasn't been seen before for any product so far. Um, you know, patients uh, have received, and, and the, um, people have received uh, multiple vaccinations in the last two years, and of course, there is some level of tiredness, so to say, on, on getting vaccinated. And uh, <clears throat> but we, we, we see the need, um, you know, for further vaccinations. And I think um, specifically for the U.S., you've heard uh, probably, um, you know, some of the, the plans that, that Pfizer and as well as our competitor Moderna has announced on how um, how the expectations will be going up um, for for the for the rest of the of the year to to pick up uh, with the vaccination rates. So in in that respect, you know, the next couple of months, the next Two three months will give us a, a good sign, you know how the how the year will end. There is some uncertainty. We just wanted to make that clear. Um, and um, you know we see 2023 as a very special year, though too. Um, I have to say so. Um, you know from our perspective, um, that situation that people have received multiple vaccinations um, and and now are maybe a little bit tired has to, to grow into a market where you have uh, annual vaccinations. And, and, and I think it gives, 23 gives us some indication, but we also believe there will be a further increased potential from our uh, perspective for 24 and the other years, just given the specific situation that we, uh, that we now have um, in this year, you know, with, with two years of, of multiple vaccinations for people. Okay, thank you. Thank you. We'll now go to your next question. And your next question comes from the line of Akash Tawari from Jeffries. Please go ahead. Hey everyone, thanks so much for taking our question. This is Amy on for Akash. Um, so uh, Pfizer has alluded to an enterprise-wide cost-cutting program, particularly around COVID if long-term vaccine demand ends up being modest. Um, how would Pfizer's cost cut change your long-term OPEX on your COVID programs and spend more broadly? And on a related note, can you go over what's changed in your new 2023 OPEX and CAPEX guide? We're seeing that BNT141 isn't on your pipeline slide this quarter. Um, are there any other components that be, may be driving these cost cuts? Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you for the question. So I'll speak to the OPEX point and then I'll ask Jens to opine on what's driving the cost lines. Uh, in our guidance. But um, on the OPEX side, the short answer is, is no. And actually, one of the unique features of our, uh, of our economic model for COVID-19 is that our OPEX is very lean. So as, as you may recall, we get a, a gross profit share on every COVID vaccine dose produced and delivered through the, the Pfizer partnership. And only in Germany and Turkey do we book top-line product sales and actually have uh, significant OPEX only in those two countries. So that does translate into a very differentiated profile across our P&L. And I think you see some of that leanness reflected in the numbers that we've disclosed today. 
Jens, do you want to speak to the uh, the drivers of the costs that you expect? Yeah, I mean, from from uh, for us, maybe we, we of course can only talk for us. Yeah, and we cannot talk about Pfizer and, and their their cost cutting plans that they have announced uh, in the earnings call. So, for from our perspective, you know, we we see a little bit less spend um, for um, the uh, collaboration with Pfizer in the course of 2023. But we also have a close look on our own spending, you know, in the areas of oncology, for example, or in, in building up production capacities. So those have been um, specific areas where we where we um, just look at, you know, controlling our costs going forward to have more flexibility. Great, thanks so much. Thank you. We'll now take your next question. And the question comes from the line of Chris Shibatani from Goldman Sachs. Please go ahead. Uh, yes, two questions if I can. One on the pipeline and the other more financially related. On the pipeline, um, BNT-122, first-line metastatic melanoma, seemed a bit conspicuous in terms of the absence of mention in the press release and in prepared comments. I do see it in the pipeline table. Have your expectations for this trial changed? I believe we should still be expecting updates in the balance of this year. And then I'll have a follow-up on, on financial. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Uh, let me start on the on the BNT122, and and, uh, and Ruben also can, can also chime in here. Um, it, so we've reiterated uh, our, uh, our guidance for an update later this year. Um, we still intend to provide that. Um, I think on, the, on a previous call, we had also mentioned that the, uh, the full the PFS analysis would be triggered on an event basis. And, and the fact is we still haven't met that event trigger, reached that event trigger, which does, which does um, mean that we're not in a position right now to be specific about the full the, the data that we're likely to bring out later this year. So we do intend to provide an update uh, before year end, but I think it's, it's likely that there won't be a full data update. So more to come on that. Yeah, I, I can just echo what... Uh... Uh, what Ryan said, uh, uh, gathering these events is not um, entirely under our control, and uh, therefore we, at this point, cannot cannot uh, forecast when we will be able to report the, the data, uh, interim analysis data point. Got it. And then on the financial follow-up, uh, very healthy cash balance, obviously, post-COVID. Um, and we are watching the decisions you're making on the capital allocation front. The InstaDeep is an example of that. And Ryan, you mentioned during the call, you look to intend to continue to in-license assets. Can you give us a sense for uh, potentially any areas that you feel, either disease area, modality, size? A lot of these have been smaller, and InstaDeep was a little bit more kind of adjacent as opposed to immediately obvious. Just be helpful to get a sense for what this mosaic is that you're creating, given your capacity. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, Chris. So, so as you see from the deals we've announced this so far this year, that um, you know we've we've allocated a little bit less than a billion um, dollars in, in terms of upfront payments across the entity transaction, and then several in licensing uh, deals for several assets that we talked about today. I, I, so, I think in, in that sense, you know. InstaDeep was a, a sort of strategic exception. Right? We thought that was a, a very unique opportunity. I wouldn't expect that that would be one that would be replicated um, uh, as such. But I think the licensing deals and, and small-scale M&A, I think you can expect us to continue to operate along the same, the same lines as what, as what you've seen so far in the first half of the year. 
So relatively uh, small deals, uh, that those are, that's our sweet spot. Under a billion is our sweet spot. We will look at and consider larger deals, but that's, you know, I think it has to be a very, very good strategic fit for us to make a, a larger move. We do see opportunities in that sub, sub one billion range to further bolster the pipeline. And in terms of focus areas, you know, as, I, as you've seen so far in the first half, uh, IO, differentiated IO assets are gonna continue to be uh, an area of focus. Great, we'll look for more insights on your innovation day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll now go to the next question. And your next question comes from the line of Joran Verber from TD Cowan. Please go ahead. Hi, guys. Thanks very much for taking the questions. This is Brendan on for your own. Um, just really quickly wanted to also ask um, maybe about the potential flu COVID combo approach here. Um, first, I guess, when, when you think we might see data um, from that study, but also maybe a little bit more broadly, kind of what the path forward is for this combo. Um, and really, I guess, trying to understand with each updated booster how this would kind of play out here, just kind of trying to get at, um, you know, Sanofi kind of cast some doubt a little bit on the whole mRNA approach, obviously, from their own perspective, but really how you're kind of thinking about mRNA fitting into the whole code flu combo space uh, from what you're seeing at this point. Thanks. Yeah, sure. I'll start. Um, so, as you know, Pfizer currently has an ongoing phase one study of a flu COVID combo vaccine, um, and they also have a phase three study ongoing of their flu, mRNA flu vaccine, which we've licensed the technology to them. We still retain some economics on the program, but they're in, they're in control and driving that program forward, the mono program. So um, we do see opportunity for a combination vaccine. I think in terms of, of timeline, you know, Pfizer has guided to a potential phase one data update this year. For the, for the combination. And, and they've also guided to near-term uh, phase three data on, the, on the, the flu mono, both of which I think will be relevant data points here to help inform the next stage of development. The last point I would add is just that Pfizer has indicated, I think just the last couple of days that, or they've reiterated that they see a uh, flu, both a flu mono and also a flu COVID combo being starting to become relevant from 2024 onwards. So not, not something to to look at this year, although I think positive data could obviously be a, be a helpful catalyst for us as well. Thank you. We will now go to our next question. One moment, please. And your next question comes from the line of Terence Flynn from Morgan Stanley. Please go ahead. Great. Good morning. Thanks for taking the question. I uh, just was wondering if you could elaborate more on the rationale to advance BNT116 into the metastatic setting while in iNest. Um, I know you've talked more about the uh, potential there in, in the adjuvant setting, so just wondering if you could kind of compare and contrast those two approaches. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. The question is, is uh, highly relevant. It's um, uh, the six-pack approach is uh, is um, based on the on the off the shelf availability of the of the vaccines. That means in the metastatic setting where the disease is is rapidly progressing, we would like to get uh, get as as quickly as possible an immune response initiated. And um, uh, personalized vaccine, individualized vaccine approach requires uh, around four to six weeks for preparation of the vaccine. Uh, uh, 
and is particularly suited for the for the adjuvant setting, and because in the adjuvant setting there is a longer time frame before patients progress, so that gives us the opportunity to build an immune response that can counteract potential progression of the disease. Therefore, all these adjuvant trials will have as an endpoint relapse-free survival as an endpoint, whereas in, in the metastatic setting, endpoints will be, uh, for example, uh, progression-free survival OOS. Thank you. We will now go to our next question. And your next question comes from the line of Bill McGann from Canaccord. Please go ahead. Hi, thank you. So um, I have a question on um, self-amplifying RNA. I know that you had de uh, been developing a few programs with your self-amplifying RNA, and it, it's kind of uh, not center stage anymore, but several other companies that are earlier in their cancer vaccine development are using self-amplifying RNA and kind of singing its praises. So I was just wondering if we could expect self-amplifying RNA to uh, to occupy some more some more of the spotlight and maybe you know be advanced in uh, in um, in some programs coming up in the future. Thanks. Yes, thank you for the question. Uh, uh, as you know, we have uh, we have two uh, empty, um, mRNA amplification programs: the self-amplifying mRNA program, as well as the trans-amplification program. We have observed, uh, and and if you look closer into the data, into published data of other groups, we have observed that the self-amplifying mRNA in humans uh, are limited in the full uh, full response uh, on innate. Uh, quick um, quick uh, initiation of innate response, uh, hindering uh, the full capacity of self-amplifying mRNA. And uh, we are working on a on an improved approach overcoming this innate innate uh, immune response limitation on a trans-amplifying uh, um, mRNA platform, which comes which combines two uh, two um, advantages: the advantage of safety. So the replicate itself is not amplified. It's, uh, it's, uh, it provides, uh, provides um, uh, only trans, trans mRNA activity, and the target mRNAs are amplified. We thereby separate the target mRNA and the, the replicate mRNA and have the opportunity to combine multiple targets. And this is something where we made uh, a lot of progress in the preclinical setting, and we will report end of this year uh, here on this platform, particularly with uh, uh, we see here suitability in the infectious disease setting, particularly in the in the setting of combination vaccines. Thank you. Thank you. We will now go to the next question, and your next question comes from the line of. Ellie Merler from UBS, please go ahead. Hi guys, this is Sarah on for Ellie. Thanks so much for taking our question. Um, I guess a quick one on 211 and the data update later this year. I guess what are the expectations for data there and, and what are you guys hoping to see? Thanks. Thank you for the question. So um, we have uh, an ongoing phase one, two trial, and uh, we have had a couple of data updates 
uh, this year and the year before. And uh, the trial is ongoing. What we expect to report uh, end of this year is additional data on the one hand on, on safety of different doses and in combination uh, with our CARVEC uh, vaccine. Um, also um, data on clinical activity in additional clinical indications. We have been very focused on testicular cancer in the previous updates. Uh, further, uh, we will report on durability uh, of these responses. Uh, we have been focused on objective response rates. Now that the data is maturing, uh, we will provide more uh, insights into durability of uh, uh, those responses and how use of the vaccine impacts them. Thank you. Thank you. We will now take our last question for today. And your last question comes from the line of Simon Baker from Redburn. Please go ahead. Thank you for taking my question. Um, it relates to uh, the Preserve 003 study. Um, it's a two-stage uh, phase three study. So I just wanted to get some idea of what data you will be presenting um, at the conclusion of stage one uh, and any timing that uh, is indicated based on your expectations for event accrual and, uh, and recruitment. And um, I see the uh, clinical trials is showing a a primary completion in mid-2026. Is that a reasonable estimate at this stage for the final data of stage two? Thanks so much. Uh, I, I didn't fully get that, Simon. Was this about data expectations for the ongoing ONC392 um, uh, ONC trial? Uh, yes, it was, um, because um, it, it's a, it's a, a two-stage study, so I wondered what data you will disclose when stage one is completed and the dose is selected. Uh, so it, it will be safety data and, and clinical activity data uh, in uh, different tumor indications. No, 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 this is, I think it's the lung cancer trial. Ah, sorry, I yeah. didn't get that. So, so we expect uh, around 2025 OR uh, data uh, and safety data. Uh, we have started the clinical trial with two different doses. Uh, we will select one dose uh, to continue. And uh, it's a stage approach based on the OR data and initial assessment of the PFS. The clinical trial will continue for, 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 Full, uh, full maturation. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you.